Amen. Good morning, everyone. Let's continue in worship by giving attention to our passage today, which is found in James, the fifth chapter, verses 12 through 18. This is God's word to you today. James writes, But most of all, my brothers and sisters, never take an oath by heaven or earth or anything else. Just say a simple yes or no so that you will not sin and be condemned. Are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick and the Lord will make you well. And if you've committed any sins, you'll be forgiven. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was a human as we are. And yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and, and the earth began to yield its crops. This is God's word to you today. You can be seated. Thank you. Well, I'm grateful to see all of you here today. My name is Chris and I'm one of the pastors here at New City and we've been on a journey, haven't we? We've been on a journey together through a wonderful book of instruction uh, entitled James, uh, entitled for the, the author that wrote these words, who was a pastor in the church of Jerusalem, and he was also the half-brother of Jesus, and he writes an instructional book. And remember that James is the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's a book of wisdom. It's a book of instruction about how to live out your faith. And the way that we framed it up together has been how do we get through what we're going through. And that's what James is writing about to a group of people, men and women just like you, who had pressures and struggles and stresses, hurts and habits and hangups, and they were wondering, how am I gonna get through what I'm going through? How can a real faith in a real Jesus make a real difference in a real broken world? And so James concludes his letter in chapter five specifically verses 7 through 20, with some concluding encouragements. And so if you have a, a pen, piece of paper, your phone, a crayon, a marker, a piece of bark, eyeliner, whatever you can take notes with, I want to encourage you to take some notes. And the devil hates when you take notes. So I want to encourage you to take notes and remember what God is saying to you today. James wants his audience uh, that includes us now through the power of the Spirit to remember these instructions. So he gives three encouragements at the conclusion of his book. And again, it's found in verses 7 through 20. In verses 7 uh, through 11 that we covered last week, James encourages us to be patient. And last week we talked about waiting time is never wasted time with God. That when we're waiting on the Lord to work and move in our life, the waiting time, which can be the hardest part, is never wasted time. That God is doing something in 
you as these working circumstances around you, especially in brokenness. So James says, be patient. Too many of us want to run ahead of God when we're going through difficult times. The Bible reminds us in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. It doesn't say I transported myself and sprinted through it, outrunning God. No, God is walking with us. And we talked about last week, if we get ahead of the one that we're following, guess what? We're not following anymore. So as we talk about finding and following after Jesus, which is what a disciple is, a follower of Jesus, we have to let him set the pace and lead the way. So we have to be patient, verses 7 through 11. Today we're going to talk about the text that you just heard, verses 12 through 20, to be prayerful. And we'll talk about what prayer is, which is basically a conversation with God. And so James encourages his congregation to be prayerful in the midst of hardship, of confusion and frustration. And he uses the word confession and telling the truth. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. And then next week, we're going to bring it all home and finish the series together by talking about being pursuing the third encouragement that James gives to his congregation in verses 19 and 20. And specifically to be pursuing of people who have wandered away from the truth who have walked away from Jesus or run ahead of Jesus. And because we love them, we want to bring people back so that they can follow after their shepherd again. So James gives three encouragements to each of us to be patient, to be prayerful, and to be pursuing. And all of them build off of one another. And so as you read this passage, and I hope you will, verses 7 through 20, the final words, the conclusion of James, you'll see how they play off of each other and build upon one another. And hopefully you'll even see that today. But let's, let's give attention to verse 12. If you have a copy of the scriptures, I want to encourage you to open them to James 5, verse 12, or, or turn them onto your, uh, on, on your phone so you can follow along. And look at the words here in verse 12, the opening phrase, but most of all, those four words, but most of all should, should make us even in this moment, in the middle of summer, kind of sit up because it's been an incredible journey. I mean, we've, we've spent 20 weeks, 20 sermons on this and, and, and we're scratching the surface here. So much wisdom to be plumbed from this book, and I hope you'll encourage you to go back and read it and study it and continue to pull wisdom from it. That's what it's here for. That's what God's word is here for. And so James is finishing, and he says, hey, everything that I've covered so far, all the instruction, all the wisdom, most of all, I want to tell you this. And he talks about being trustworthy, and he does it, look at verse 12, by saying, I don't want you to make any oaths. I just want your yes to be yes and your no to be no. Any of you remember the story of the scorpion and the frog? It was a, it was a 20th century fable. The scorpion finds itself on a river bank in the middle of a river and it's beginning to flood. The waters are, are rising and there's a frog there on the river bank with him. And the story goes that the scorpion came over to the frog and approached him and said, hey, I know I'm a scorpion but you can believe me, you can take me at my word that if you'll give me a ride across this river so you can save my life, I won't sting you. And the frog says, no, I, I'm not supposed to be talking to you. Um, you're a scorpion and you'll sting me. And this scorpion says, no, 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 I promise you I won't. Hey, if I sting you, we're both gonna die. It's mutually assured destruction. 
So, so if you give me a ride across the river and you save my life, I, I won't sting you. I promise. I, I, I make an oath to you. My word, I won't sting you. And so the frog thinks about that and the logic of it. And he says, you know, yeah, I guess we'll both die if he stings me. I'll take him at his word. So the scorpion hops on the frog's back and the story goes that they begin to swim or the frog does across the river. And everything's going okay until they get halfway across the river and the frog feels a sting in his back. And he realizes in the middle of the river that the scorpion is stinging him. He begins to feel the poison run through his body and in his final words, he turns to the scorpion and says, why did you sting me? We're both going to die. And the scorpion replies to the frog, because I'm a scorpion. And that's what I do. You should never have taken me at my word. Now there's lots of interpretations to this fable, but wouldn't you agree with me that most of all, this is a fable, a story about being trustworthy, about letting your yes be yes and your, your no be no, and, and, and not uh, taking someone at their oath or allowing them to evoke something that would be different from what you know them to be in their character. And that's exactly in context to teach this passage, exactly what was happening in the first century to the audience that James is writing to. They're using the name of God. They're naming, using the name of his creation of earth and anything else. You know, I swear on my grandmother's you know, grave or whatever else, the way we would say it today, that I won't do this. And James says, stop it. Stop doing that. Stop making oaths. Just, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now, if, if you're reading this and you're hearing this for the first time, and you think, man, after all of this incredible wisdom for living, which let's remember what wisdom is. Remember, wisdom is the sacred intersection between knowledge and practice. So it's this wonderful thing that God gives to us of knowing something and putting it into practice. And again, James is full of it. All this wisdom that he's giving to us. And at the end he says, but most of all, and then he says, and it strikes me as a little strange, don't make any oaths. And you think, uh, that seems a little anticlimactic that you would be talking about this is the most important thing that you're writing about in the book is not making oaths. But actually, if we dig a little bit deeper, what James is saying is you need to live an integritous life, a true story, and be trustworthy with the truth. And if we begin to really think about it and you begin to uh, recall some of the messages and some of the readings that we've gone through in the book, a lot of James's teaching about wisdom comes back to the story you're believing about God, about yourself, and about other people. And remember we talked about, and James writes about this over and over and over again, that your words, your spoken words, your written words, the, the promises that you're making, the words that you're speaking are a reflection of what's in your heart. So as one of my friends says it, what's down in the well comes up in the bucket. Jesus said it this way, from the overflow of the heart come your words. So your words become a reflection of what you're believing, of what you're putting your faith in, of how you're living your life. And moreover, as we look at verse 12, oaths are about your word. 
the believability and the integritousness of your word. Are you trustworthy or not? So actually the whole idea about making oaths is about are you living a true story and are your words reflecting the truth of what you're believing? And remember guys, that your word builds your world. The words that you are speaking are building the world that you're living in. And let me just give a little theological underpinning of this in the scriptures. Genesis 1-3, the beginning of the world, the creation account of the world. As God is building his world, he spoke it into existence. And John 1, which is a reflection of the Genesis account of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, he says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God, and nothing was made apart from the word. And then he goes on, John does and says, the word became flesh. The word put flesh on and moved into the neighborhood and dwelt among us. That Jesus, the son of God, became the ultimate revelation of God to humanity. God sent prophets, he sent miracles, he sent patriarchs, he sent priests, but ultimately he sent his son as a revelation of who he is, as an explanation to us of who God is, and to invite us into his true story through the power of the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the true story of God, the good news of God, that through Jesus, God did for us what we could not and what we would not do for ourselves. So God sent his son as a reflection of the true story, his true feelings for us, his love for us. And Jesus accomplished for us on the cross what we could not accomplish for ourselves. Words build worlds. It was through the word made flesh that God made a new creation, that he is building the world around us and the world that he is redeeming. In fact, in James, James 1.18, go back and read that passage, James 1 verse 18, James says, God chose to give us new birth by sending us his true word, by telling us the truth through the person and the words of Jesus. That's how powerful and important words are. And so actually the passage here, as we get into prayer, it begins with our words. What is prayer? Prayer is our spoken word or words in our hearts that we're speaking to God. And so it makes sense that James says, but most of all, you've got to have words. You've got to speak words in your heart and, and through your mouth that are integritous, that are believable, that are trustworthy. Because when you're adding to your yes or your no, which is what making an oath is, I'm showing one of two things, guys. I'm showing that either I'm feigning reverence, like I'm, I'm evoking the name of God to cover my own agenda and my own story, my own plans, or I'm covering my deceit or the false story that I'm living in by, by using the name of Jesus to cover it. Now, we would never do this, but for people that we might know who would do this, who would make an oath, who would say, I'm actually living my story, I'm on my agenda, my time, you know, my values, but I wanna cover that with the name of God. You know what we call that, by the way? Religion. Who were the people that came after Jesus that caused him the most problems? 
religious people. Jesus said, you're, you're a bunch of whitewashed tombs. What does that mean? It means you look good on the outside, but on the inside, you're rotten. That what's really down in your heart is not integritous. It's not true. So you're, you're, you're going and you're praying three times a day and, and, you know, and God this and Jesus this and whatever, but in your heart, you're living a false story that's corrupted. So I want you to hear this with the passage. The point is not whether we should take an oath in court or not. You know, like people have read this and like, well, that, this is why you shouldn't be on a jury. You shouldn't take an oath. It, really? Like everything in James, and James says, but most of all, don't take an oath in court. No. It, there's a much greater point here. It's about being honest with God and yourself and other people. And an oath, a spoken word like that, is a reflection of the story that you're believing. This is what James is talking about. And it's the lack of our faith and integrity, truth, that's appalling to James. And why he says, most of all, don't take an oath. Remember in James 2, verse 14, James says, what good is it if you have faith, but you're not able to put it into practice? Like, like, like nothing changes in your life. You don't need to be perfect, but like you've been walking with God for years and years and you're still just as much as you jerk, you know, as you were when you came to know Jesus. Now, here's the thing. All of us, if we were jerks when we met Jesus, you're probably still a jerk. You're just on the, you're on the sanctification journey, okay? I'll speak for myself. You still can be a jerk. You know, you still can have your flesh and your brokenness and act out of that. But, but I would hope after like five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years of journeying with Jesus, I'm less of a jerk, right? Because I'm, less, I'm, I'm living less and less out of my false self, out of the, of the shadow mission of myself and living more into the true self that God made me to be and called me to be, right? Does that make sense? And so this is not so much about, hey, should I take an oath in court or not? It's about, it's about being integritous in your heart and with your words and with your actions, which is everything. And what is the definition of integrity, by the way, if you're taking notes? The definition of integrity is trueness. It's, it's congruency. It's, it's wholeness. In other words, that, that when you ring the bell, it rings true, that it holds together, that you're living a congruent life, that it's, that it's pure, that there's truth there. And so, again, what is the theme of James, his whole letter, five chapters that we're finishing in the next two weeks? It's wisdom. It's about living out what you believe, which is what wisdom is. And it's doing that from a place of integrity. Just hear this. Integrity should characterize more than anything else, right? Integrity should characterize Christians. And integrity flows from a wholehearted reliance on grace, not on works. If we try to live by works, we end up settling for a veneer of religiosity and it's not true. It doesn't ring true in our hearts because our hearts don't understand how wickedly deceptive we are. And guess who you tell the the greatest lies to, by the way? Yourself. And so, so James is saying, it's gotta start in your heart. With you, you actually believe the gospel and you're believing it more and more in every area of your life. And so integrity should, incar- should characterize Christians who are relying on God's grace because you know why you rely on God's grace, by the way? Because you know you need it. People who don't think grace is amazing don't know how amazing their sin is. You, you can't sing amazing grace until you know how amazingly wicked you are. 
how amazingly broken you are without Jesus. And then you run to the cross because I need grace. And I don't know if you're like me, but I'm reminded of that every single day. So integrity should characterize Christians because integrity flows from a true heart, a whole heart relying on grace. And listen to this, unbelief or a bell that doesn't ring true to use that metaphor, unbelief manifests itself in bargaining, in manipulating, there's another word for that, lying, trying to impress, covering, and guess what all those come back to? Making oaths swearing by the name of Jesus as you cover your nonsense and your worldly story that you're believing. And James says, stop doing that because the opposite manifestation of that flows from faith. And it looks an awful lot like prayer. That the opposite of covering, of manipulating, of making false statements and oaths to cover the false story that I'm believing is a, is a story of faith that manifests itself in prayer. And prayer is simply a conversation, words that I'm having with God. And by the way, my prayer to God overflows in my conversations and my prayers to other people, brothers and sisters that are on the pilgrimage and the journey towards Jesus together as we follow after him. And so if you don't get anything else out of this message, I, I hope that you'll get this. That, that when you live the true story, what is the true story? The true story is the truth. The truth about who God says you are, that you are loved, that you are valued, that you are loved and valued enough that Jesus came for you to explain himself to you, to invite you to his table forever, that he did for you what you could not do for yourself. And now everything else in my life is an overflow of that identity that is secure in Christ now. That is who you are. And when I live out of that, I'm living a life of worship, of trueness. And when I live in that true story of the gospel, I can tell the whole story. When I live in a true story, I can tell the whole story. I don't have to cover with you. Now, I can be wise about what I say and don't say with different groups of people, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But I don't have to cover, I don't have to compartmentalize my life. And well, where am I at? Which hat do I need to have on today? Am I a Christian today? Am I not a Christian today? Am I, well, how serious am I about all this? Are these Jesus people? What? No, I, I'm just living my life with Jesus, and I can live in an integritous, true way. But, and I can tell the whole story because I'm living the true story. That the gospel is in my heart and so everything else becomes a reflection of the true story I'm believing. And the antithesis of this, by the way, is that I'm living multiple lives at the same time. And some of you in here are doing that right now. Some people think that you're this on Monday. Some people think you're this on Sunday. Some people think you're this in the a.m., you're this in the p.m. with different groups of people that you're around. And it's, you know, we've all been there. It's exhausting to remember, like, who do I need to be for which person around me? And God, listen, guys, God invites us into something so much better. That you can actually be yourself as God called you to be. And, and here's the amazing thing, right? I, when I'm living the true story of the gospel, I can tell the whole story because God redeemed the whole story. I can tell you the bad parts, the ugly parts, because God God you know, redeem that. Jesus died for that. I don't have to just tell you the highlight reels. So many people 
are, are literally publishing to you on Instagram and other places the highlight reels of their life. Like, here, here's my life in 30 seconds, and it is all sunshine and beaches. It's beautiful. I'm smiling in every picture. But the truth is, to get those 30 seconds of highlights, you got like hours and hours of lowlights of all these moments that you wouldn't want anybody else seeing. And the, 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 the amazing thing that God invites you into, and this is why James is jumping up and down saying, but most of all, is that when I understand the gospel, I don't have to pose anymore. I don't have to be a poser. I don't have to cover. I don't have to curate my story so that you only see the highlights. I can, I can confess, we're gonna get to that word in a minute, all of my life and my heart in a congruent way and tell the whole story because I know the true story. And here's another insight, by the way. When we get into prayer here and praying for one another, when you're not able to tell the whole story to other people, you'll never tell the whole story to God and vice versa. If you won't be honest with God, you'll never be honest in community with other people. And by the way, if you want the most honest prayer, you know, journal, if you will, of all time, go read the Psalms. If David wasn't honest, we'd never have the Psalms. If David wasn't depressed, if he wasn't confused, if he wasn't wondering how am I going to get through what I'm going through, we'd never have the Psalms. But he was all of those things and more, but he never forgot the true story. He never forgot who God was, and so he continued to pray and cry out to God. And listen, God's a big boy. He can take it. He can handle your cries. Read the Psalms and some of the things David is saying to God. And God is able to contain and absorb all of that, the true story. So when, when James writes about prayer, he has this in mind that, that you're understanding the gospel, the true story, and it's coming out in your words to God and to other people. So James says, be prayerful. Look at verses 13 through 15. He says, be prayerful. And he says three things about being prayerful. And I put three H's. You know, James is a preacher, so I appreciate this, of how he's outlined this. He says, you know, be prayerful in your hardship. You don't need to raise your hand, but I, I love the question there. Any of you going through hardship? And I, I'm guarantee you, every single person reading letters going, me? And he goes, okay, if you're going through hardship, let me, let me give you a, an instruction. You should pray. You should pray. You should tell God that you're going through hardship. Tell him what is in your heart. Remember, James's audience was facing all kinds of political persecution. They were in a new place. They were kicked out of Palestine. They were having to make a new life. They were going through all kinds of suffering. And James encourages them, in your hardship, you know, not, I wonder if you'll ever go through hardship. Because no, in your hardship, when you're going through hardship, you should pray. And remember the one word prayer, let's never forget this, that God wants to hear from you more than anything else in your life. By the way, it's the entryway to grace in your life, the one word prayer. Help. I need your help, God. This is what I'm facing tomorrow morning at work is too big for me. What I'm facing right now relationally is too big for me. What I'm going through in my life right now, I don't, I'm so confused. I'm so heartbroken. I'm so frustrated. It's too big for me, God. Would you be present with me? Would you help me? You should pray in your hardship, James says. If you're happy, right, we're not going to do the song, but if you're happy and you know it, if you're happy and you know it, you, you should what? Look at the passage. You should sing. And some people are like, when we come to church, like, why do we need to sing? Because we're a singing community. 
God, God gave us the gift of song. In fact, the Bible says that the Lord has put a, a new song in our heart. And so singing is a reflection of what's in our hearts. And I love what Stuart Fenters, our worship pastor, says. He says, when you sing, you actually pray twice. Think about that. You're, you're singing a song to God and you know, in the moment you're worshiping, but God's singing a song over you. And more than the sermon, and I know this as a preacher, more than a sermon that you'll remember on Tuesday, you'll remember the song that you sung. You can pull up a song from 1985 right now. Listen, if you know, Beat It or Bad or something like that came on right now, I'm so embarrassed to say that I would repeat every single word. It is in a file back here that is dusty, but my brain would just go, yeah, here we go, Michael Jackson, and I'm back. And I could sing all of that. Songs have a way of getting down into your soul. So James says, when you're happy, and by the way, when you're rejo- the, the word there is to rejoice, and to rejoice is a choice. And we can rejoice even when we're not happy, even when we're not going through happy circumstances, because rejoicing is a choice. I can sing to God, right, because of the new song that he's given me in my heart. So James says, as a part of prayer, you pray in your hardship, you sing to God, you know, in rejoicing, even when you're, when you're happy, you sing out to God's reflection, even when you're not happy, and you rejoice in that. And then ver- look at verses 14 and 15. He says, um, let's talk about health. When you're sick, you don't need to raise your hand. Any, are any of you sick, James, ask, us, ask, ask the question, ask us the question. Are any of you sick? And of course, many of us in the room, many of you watching today are sick. And James says in verse 14, look at it here with me. He says, you should call on the elders of the church to come and pray over you and anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord. Let's talk about that for a minute. What, oil in the scriptures was always a sign of the presence and the power of God. So think about when many of the kings were anointed, when David was anointed, oil was poured over his head as a sign of the presence of God, the anointing of God, the power of God over his life. And so oil was used in the Old Testament and all throughout the New Testament as well as a symbol, as a sign of the presence of God. It was used for medicinal purposes as well. So in the early church and even now in our church, we'll take oil and anoint people with oil, not because the oil is special in and of itself, because, but because we're praying a prayer of healing over that person's life and we're praying for the special work of God in their life. And James says, you should call on the elders. Who are the elders? Well, there's an office of elder in the New Testament, and we have elders here. And so elders are, are folks from the congregation that are leaders that are called out by Jesus and set apart and affirmed by the congregation to give spiritual oversight and leadership to the church. So he certainly means that group of elders, but the word elder is broader than that. It means an experienced person, a person that's been walking with Jesus for a while. So it's not just the, the office of elder, the people who are serving those positions for a time and a space. It's people who are, are further along in their journey with Jesus. And all of us should have people that we're, that we're looking to to follow, right? All of us should have people in our life, Christians that are closer to Jesus because of their walk and their experience that we're, that we're emulating and we're walking after. We should also have people that are beside us, by the way, that we're journeying with. We should have people that are behind us that we're mentoring. That's the Christian journey. You should always have someone who's ahead of you that you're looking to You should always have people beside you that you're journeying with and a current experience in your life. You should have people behind you that you're pouring into and you're mentoring. James says, call on the elders, the people that are ahead of you. 
have them anoint you with oil as a sign of the presence and the power of God. And then look at verse 15. He says, such a prayer offered in what? Are you, are you at the buffet? Have you guys already left? <laughs> such a prayer, look at verse 15, such a prayer offered in faith. Offered in faith, there's our word, in truth will heal the sick and the Lord will make you well. And if you've committed sins, you'll be forgiven. Now, this, this verse sometimes gets pulled out of context to mean if I just pray and I just say these words, then God will, will heal me physically. And I, I wish that that were true. But what the passage actually means is much more spiritual, that God will heal you. The word there for heal is salvation. That as I humble myself before the Lord, as I confess the true story of the gospel, that I, my need for God, God will heal me. Now, here's the thing. As a pastor, I've seen people miraculously healed before. God calls us to pray, not as a last resort, but as the first thing that we do, to trust him and his power. But ultimately, we're placing everything back into God's sovereign hands, and there's nothing in your life that comes to you as a follower of Jesus that hasn't been sovereignly sifted through the almighty sovereign hands of God. That is a comforting teaching and that it can be a troubling teaching. And we have to acknowledge the tension of that. There are people that I have prayed for earnestly that are in heaven now. There are people that I've prayed for earnestly, anointing them with oil that are still here. I, I don't know why. That belongs in the heart of God, somewhere deep in the heart of God and the mysteries of God that I don't understand, that his ways are above my ways. But here's what I know. Until God calls you home or until he returns, I'm going to pray in faith that you will be healed. And that's how I pray. If I come into your hospital room, right? If I come into your hospital room, it's worse than they're telling you. But I will, I, I will be there and I will pray for you, right? And... Yeah. I'm going to pray for you, and I have my whole life, no matter what the doctor's saying, I'm going to pray that God will heal you until he reveals otherwise. Because I believe that's what James calls us to do. Not just the elders or the pastors, but all of us as Christians to pray that God would heal. And then ultimately we're placing that person into the sovereign hands of God and that we can trust them. And here's the good news, that ultimately all physical healing are a manifestation of a spiritual healing that Jesus has already accomplished. So what James is ultimately saying, and again, the word healing here is salvation, that ultimately as I humble myself before the Lord and other leaders in the church and I call upon the Lord in faith, I am going to be healed. Whether the manifestation is on this side of eternity or in glory. Because God's promised me a new body, a new, a new manifestation physically of the new life that he's given to me. And then God, uh, uh, James says, you need to confess your sins to one another. Look at verse 16. He says, confess your sins to each other. This is all part of prayer. We confess our sins to each other and we pray for each other so that what? So that you will be healed. Same word here, salvation. You'll be healed spiritually. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. So if you're taking notes, just write this down. That we confess to one another right? And we pray for one another, and those, are, those two are connected. Remember I said, if you're not being honest and telling the true story of one another, then you can't tell the true story to God. So in other words, if someone's not telling you what's really going on, 
then it's very difficult to pray for them or for them to tell God what's going on. This is the whole beauty of confession. And we are meant to be a confessing people, to be telling the Lord and other people what we believe, what we're longing for, and what is true about our brokenness. Because when I'm true, truthful about my brokenness, I'm also reminded of the truth of God's grace and his wholeness to me. Does that make sense? And when I'm not true about my brokenness to you and to God, I can never fully receive the amazing grace that God has for me. And I want you to pay attention to this. The last part of verse 16, look at it with me. He says, the prayer, the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. I want to pull out two words there. The earnest prayer. What does earnest mean? Those of you who are in the financial sector, you know. When someone makes a purchase and they put earnest money down on what they've said they're going to do, what does that mean? It means they're serious. The word earnest means serious. I'm putting earnest money down. I'm serious about this. Here's another word for earnest. True. It's true. It rings true. What I'm saying rings true in my heart. It's earnest. And James says the truthful, the integritous, the earnest prayer of a righteous person availeth much, if you learned it in the KJV. It produces wonderful results. Let's talk about righteous person because you go, well, where can I find a righteous person? I look to your left, maybe look to your right. How many of you have a righteous person around you? Who's a righteous person? All right. Righteous means to be right with God. So what James isn't saying is find yourself a perfect person and get them to pray for you because that'll work. He's very careful in his words because words build worlds. He says the earnest, the serious, the true prayer of a righteous person, someone who has been made right with God. In other words, someone who is believing the true story of the gospel, who knows that they could not be made right with God on their own, but through the work of Jesus on the cross that we have been made right with God. Someone who has called upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Someone who knows that they need God's amazing grace because they know how amazingly wicked they are on their own. Find a person who's following Jesus and understands that it's through the gospel that they're made right. And that is the righteous person. That is the person that you should ask to pray for you in a serious, true, integritous way. And he says, you, could, you should confess your sins to one another. Let me just say this really quick, okay? I'm almost out of time. Confession is something that should be regularly happening in your life, but it rarely happens in the life of Christians. We spend a lot more time covering than we do confessing. Let me tell you all the ways that everything is fine. Instead of, I'm, I'm kind of a mess. And here's something that's going on that I, I need your prayers for. But the reason why we don't do it oftentimes is because we haven't built healthy, trusting relationships with brothers and sisters who can do that for us. So I want to give you just a little quick teaching. You're taking notes, I promise, 60 seconds on this. But it's so important about confession. You need to have people that you can tell everything to. But you don't need to tell everything to everyone. Okay? You need to find a righteous person, integritous, true person, 
that can contain what you're saying, that can hold it, that's not going to go post it on Instagram or Facebook. You know, everybody has somebody to tell. That's the old saying. You need to find someone who doesn't have someone to tell. They're not in the business of exploiting your story to feel better about themselves or to shame you or embarrass you. They want to contain that. They want to hold that for you. One of, the, one of the greatest things you can say to a friend is, I will hold that for you. Thank you for sharing that with me. I, I, I will hold that for you. And I'll, I'll stand with you in prayer. I'll hold that with you before Jesus. You need a couple people you can do that with. Can, can I tell you something else? You may need to pay someone to do that. Not everybody. But you might need to pay a good Christian counselor to do that with you. Someone who's been trained, who has biblical wisdom, right, that can sit with you in that. You don't need to pay everybody for that. That's not what I'm saying. But some of you, you need to invest in that. You know, I tell people, I, I have a counselor right now, and I will pay good money for biblical wisdom, anonymity, and confidentiality. You need to have someone and someone, small group that you can bear your soul to and confess to. You're as sick as your secrets, some of you are holding some deep, dark secrets. And you need to tell the Lord. But James says there's power in also telling a trusted brother or sister and confessing with them that can hold it with you and hold it before Jesus. Now watch, you want to tell some people, right? You want to tell some people some things. So you can tell people about your process. We're all in process. So as the Lord is giving you victory and healing over your brokenness, your sin, whatever it might be, that you can begin to tell some of your story. I call this your scab, right? I'm not going to come up to all of you and go, look at this, and I'm bleeding out. Hey, look, everybody look at this. And it's a mess. It's going everywhere, right? It's getting all over you. I'm getting infected. I'm letting everybody touch an open, gaping wound. No, that's just not wise. I would go to a few trusted people that can help me and bring healing. But once it starts to scab over a little bit, can I tell you what happened? And look at what, this is amazing. Look at, look at how God is healing this. And you should have a small group of people. Maybe it is your small group or a few other people that you can help tell your process to your grief story, how the Lord is bringing you healing. And then here's, here's the really cool thing. Then you want to be able to stand up in front of the whole church and all the world and show people your scars. So look at how the Lord has healed me and I'm still in process. It's, if, you, if you hit on that scar, all of us have scars, right? And scars make the best stories. Let me tell you, I got this scar, right? We've all done that. But if you push on it or whatever, it's still tender. It can still hurt. It's still in process. But the Lord has brought so much healing and victory that I want to give a testimony to God in front of the whole church and encourage other people on the journey. So let me just say this really quickly. You've got wounds that need to be tended to by a small group of people in confession and honesty and truth. You've got scabs that you need to tell more people, your small group, your family, other people, the process of your healing. You've got scars that you need to stand up and say, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I love what the poet once said, who can follow a man far who doesn't have a scar? We all have scars, and we have scar stories, and they're important. And speaking of scar stories... James chooses to end this powerful teaching on prayer with Elijah. And it seems a little random, but it actually fits together. It holds together when you know the story of Elijah in 1 Kings. And so in verses 17 and 18, he says, you know, Elijah was a person just like us. In other words, he was just like you. He had problems just like you. He had struggles just like you. He had doubts just like you. I want you to pay attention. 
He says, you know, he prayed. And how did he pray? Look at the word, verse 17. Earnestly. And the Lord shut off heaven. And he prayed earnestly and the Lord opened up heaven. You can go read a story in 1 Kings. I love that this was, we planned this series six months ago. I love this was the rainiest week in Charlotte when we're talking about Elijah and rain. James says he was a, a person that prayed with integrity, with earnestness, with truthfulness. And that's the whole point. That's what James is encouraging us with. That when I, when I tell the true story, right? When, when I'm living out the true story, I, I can tell. I, I, I can tell you everything. I can tell the whole story because God redeemed the whole story. When, when I understand the true story of the gospel, I can live congruently and integritously the whole story out in front of you, the good, the bad, and the ugly, because it's all covered by the grace of God. And that's what James 5, 12 through 18 teaches us today. To Christ alone be the glory. Let's pray together. But most of all, my dear brothers and sisters, never take an oath by heaven or earth or or anything else. Just say a, a simple yes or no so that you won't sin or be condemned. And if any of you are going through hardships, you should pray. And if any of you are happy, you should sing praises. If you're sick, you should call on the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick and the Lord will make you well. And if you've committed any sins, you'll be forgiven. And you should confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you can be healed. Because the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was a human just as we are. And yet he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall and none fell for three and a half years. And then he prayed again that the sky would send down rain and it rained for three, and it rained uh, hard on the earth so that it began to yield its crops. God, would you give us the wisdom today to know what you've spoken to us through your word? And would you give us the encouragement and the faith to leave this place today and obey? In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.